got so excited I came up early. Did you, did you catch that? They say, don't ever mention the things you mess up because no one knows they think it was planned. It wasn't planned. My, um, I was talking to my friend this morning, Chris, and he said, don't mention me by name. So his name's Chris. Uh, and uh, and uh, he said this. I didn't say this. this was, I could never, I would never get away with saying this. But he said, if you didn't show up to church on time today, you got wet. Just figured out who the ones were that were a little bit late today because you just had that awkward chuckle. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I did see some of you get wet. Uh, in, uh, in 1983, this, uh, this thing came on the market. Some of us remember the 80s quite well. If we grew up in the 80s, lots of stuff was coming on the market. But this thing in particular came on the market. It was created by a British gal named Leslie Scott. She had picked up some blocks from a sawmill in Takarati, Ghana, and created a game for her kids out of those blocks. In 83, she marketed it as a fun, blocked building game called Jenga, taken from the Swahili word uh, kujenga, which means to build. Now, how many of you guys have ever played Jenga? No, nearly everybody has ever played Jenga. If you have not played Jenga, I don't know, maybe you grew up in the UP or somewhere. I don't know. Some of the lower trolls were like, oh, yeah, anyways. Uh, and so, the, but the, the reality of this fun little relaxing game has very little to do with building and everything to do with trying to create such a terrible tower that your opponents knock it over, right? It's built as a building game. It's really not a building game. It really has more to do with destruction. And we know that because there's always the one guy who takes out the two bottom blocks and just leaves the one in the center. And that's, that's the guy we love because, you know, that game's going to be over quick. Right? It's not about building. It's really about destroying. It's no way to build. And, and if the game itself wasn't anxiety-producing enough, if it didn't cause enough stress inside you, the Australians, who always seem to make things more stressful, came along and they invented this version here. From Hasbro Gaming. Think you've seen it all from Jenga? Think again. Jenga Quick is the flagship Race against your opponents as tremors threaten to topple the tower. But the biggest blow has yet to come, so move fast. You never know when the ultimate quake will strike. Jenga quake. Chatteries not included. Here comes the quake. Jenga earthquake. Now in California, that's just a normal game. That's just what we play all the time. Everything's earthquake. But so, so the Australians created that, right, to add more anxiety to it. But if that didn't have enough element of danger and death, somebody, probably a youth pastor, that's my assumption, uh, went and created this version of it. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Check this one. Really not that bad. Oh, yeah. How do you take a classic game like Jenga to the next level? You make it eight times bigger. And then you set it on fire. But how do you keep your hands from burning with this special goo? So I feel it's my obligation based on our insurance company to mention that at the bottom of that it said, don't try this at home ever. 
men, right? Ever. Do not, unless you're a firefighter, in which case do what you want. Uh, so, so if that didn't cause enough anxiety, right, uh, about a game that was already anxiety producing enough, well, there, there is a game that's actually on the other side of the building spectrum. This, this is literally a building game. Uh, it came on the market and it's the exact opposite and it's called Tetris. Now, a number of us have probably paid, uh, played Tetris at some point on our phone at work in the restroom, killing a little time, right? And it's all about building. It's literally about building. It's about angles and certain size blocks and the whole goal being to build the best solid wall you can. And so somebody decided to take a game that's all about building and all about destruction and combine them uh, into this. New Jenga Tetris. Now, the, the, the fun part of all of those videos is to watch the people's faces playing it. Don't they look terrified? And we live in a culture... Anyways, I, I don't know. It's funny. A few months ago, I actually got a job uh, playing Tetris all day long. I started working for UPS out at the airport, and uh, I'm out there with Tim Decker and uh, um, Matt Salisbury. And literally all day long, we build Tetris. We try to build the highest walls we can out of boxes inside cans. I, I, it's, it's kind of uh, awesome. I'm getting... Uh, paid to play. Uh, anyways, why are we talking about Jenga and Tetris at church? I'm so glad you asked. I was hoping somebody would be like, what are we doing this morning? We are in this series that uh, we've called Holy, Holy, Holy. And the idea is that we are complete in Christ. That's that first holy. We are complete. We are full. We have all the things that God wants us to have that we need to have in this relationship with Christ to live these lives markedly different from the world, to live holy, holy, complete, to live lives that are holy, and and yet in the reality of all of that, in the midst of all that truth, we still sometimes uh, leak. We're we're holy. And it's not like like our righteousness leaks out or somehow we lose our salvation or we're less in God's eyes than we were at some point. That's not true. It's more like stuff leaks into us that maybe shouldn't be there, that kind of get in the way of the relationship and the way that God wants us to live. So we are in this series called Holy, Holy, and Holy. And so if you'd open your Bible this morning, if, if you have the North Point app, that's a great place to go to. If you don't have that, maybe, maybe now is a good time to download that. If you don't like apps and you don't like downloading, that's fine. Pull out your paper Bible if you have that. And if you don't have any of those things, we've got Bibles in the pew back, and we'll put the verses up on screen. But uh, we want to jump back into first. Peter. Last week we talked a lot about who Peter was and kind of hopefully set up um, at least a picture of Peter in your mind that I think will be very rich over these next few weeks as we walk through this series of First and Second Peter. These letters that this disciple of Jesus wrote to encourage some struggling churches, struggling people. And this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, as you come to him, to Jesus, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to those who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. 
That's it this morning. We just want to look at this imagery of this cornerstone. Peter just comes right out the chute saying Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, I'm not a construction guy, and I don't know who here is into construction. And if you work with stone, apparently the cornerstone is an incredibly important piece. Matter of fact, the cornerstone is the first stone that's laid in this stone structure, in this stone building, and it sets the angles for that entire structure. So if you have a cornerstone that isn't square, if you want a structure that's square, you could be in deep trouble. If you have a cornerstone that has kind of uh, triangled angles to it, that's how your structure will be. If you want to build a structure with triangled angles, and that's fantastic, you find a cornerstone that's like that or you make one that way. The cornerstone sets the angles. It really sets the trajectory and the entire design of the structure that's being built. And Peter takes that imagery and says, Jesus is our cornerstone. Jesus sets the entire trajectory for our lives as believers. And when you think about that, it makes some sense then that if Jesus is our cornerstone, if he's the starting block of our lives, it would force us to live lives markedly different from the rest of the world. This idea that our building would look different because it has a different cornerstone. Uh, everybody has a cornerstone. Everybody roots their life on something. Uh, sometimes uh, when we talk about this, there might be a person in the room that says, no, I don't. I just go through life and, and live it the way I want every day. I'm just carefree. Well, you, you just listed maybe three cornerstones. <laughs> Me, carefree, whatever I want. I, so we all somehow base our lives on some element of a starting block. And for Christ followers, for for disciples, for those who are following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus, he is our cornerstone. And that's why we ought to be, and we should be, and we are living lives markedly different from the world. It's, it's fascinating to me that Peter uh, uses this Im- imagery because if you know Peter's story at all, uh, I think this rock imagery is super important to him. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, uh, Peter's been following Jesus for a while. They're kind of doing the things that they're doing and they're having this conversation. And, and in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says this to Peter. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. There's a little play on words there in the Greek. And on this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That that Greek word for Peter is also used for rock, and so it's like Jesus uh, renames Peter like Little Rock or Rocky, and he's like, hey, rock on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And this, this imagery bled into Peter's existence so much, this picture of a rock and what that means, that when he's preaching, it just pours out of him. In, in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John, they, they've done, they, they met this guy who's sitting on the side of the road. He's, he's, he's lame from, from birth. He, he can't walk. And, and he says, hey, uh, do you have any money? He's just begging. And, and Peter looks at him and says, hey, I don't have any money, but what I do have, like, I'll give you, like, just get up and, and walk, which is it's a whole other sermon to preach that thing. And the guy does. That's the crazy part. He gets up and he walks. And, and, and then the religious leaders get kind of frustrated and upset because they weren't part of that thing. And so they they uh, arrest Peter and John, and, and then in chapter 4, verse 7, this is where we pick up the story. It says, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Did you heal this guy? Would you think they would just be happy that somebody was healed, <laughs> right? 
but they're really worried about some of the minutiae here on how that happened. Verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. But God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Because Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Sound familiar? Because salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter, bringing out this picture of the cornerstone. Peter, the guy who was named Rock, Rocky. He brings out this picture of the cornerstone. And it makes sense that this would be so pivotal to him because his whole life, his whole trajectory of life was changed by Jesus. Peter started out his day as a fisherman and Jesus ended his day as becoming a fisher of men. His whole world was turned upside down by this Jesus that he met and his life was radically changed to the extent that Peter is clearly screaming, salvation is found in nobody else. There's no other hope for mankind except this Jesus. Well, if we hop back to, verse P, uh, for, back to 1 Peter, verse 5, I just want to uh, cap in here again. Verse 5, Peter, Peter keeps this, this stone imagery going, and he says, you also, he's, he's talking to the church, the people that would claim to be followers of Jesus. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That's... That's fascinating language because he could have used lots of different structures. He, he could have used like an office cubicle. He could have used like a single man tent. He could have used phone booth. He could have used lots of, of single people dwellings, but he didn't. He picks the imagery of a home or a house, which, which immediately conjures up a sense of family and others and connectedness because we were not designed to do life alone. It's, it's sort of in that human intimate relationship with other people and in this imagery, a house where we're challenged to grow in our best ways. And maybe we don't always love that challenge because when our wife or our husband looks at us and says, um, I may not feel good, but those are the places that we grow the most. We're not designed to do life alone. Life is truly better together. We go spiritually further, faster in groups other people is God's plan A for us. Not just a spouse or kids or parents or a family, but other people who are on the journey together. And, and so I just want to take five minutes and I want, to pound, uh, uh, I want to pound the importance of being in a life group. Now, some of you are going to roll your eyes and some of you are like, all ready to cheer. And that's okay. I love you. And Jesus loves you. And he loves me too. So you have to just deal with it some. Uh, the importance... <laughs> of being in a life group. That's what we call them at North Point. We were really talking about intentional disciple-making friendships. Right? The, the, corporate worship is good. Like what we do here together on a Sunday morning, I think it's vital to our spiritual health. I mean, sometimes in our brains, we start thinking this, that, or the other thing. And I got to imagine at some point you wonder, is this whole Jesus thing true? Or is this whole Jesus thing worth it? Or whatever. And, and then you get into an environment like this and you see a few hundred people worshiping and you recognize the reality that there's a few million people or billion people worshiping around the planet on a day like this, whether it be Ecuador or whatever your home country is, probably even the UP. <laughs> and there's tons of people worshiping and it begins to, to remind us of how powerful and expansive this Christian movement, this followers of Jesus movement, a corporate worship is important, but I don't think it's enough 
to put us into intentional disciple-making relationships. You, you run in here out of the rain on a Sunday morning, you, you sit down and there's a plan and we participate together and it's good and it's powerful and then you run out because you've got kids or lunch or lawn or whatever we're trying to get to and then you contact me in a few months and you say, I don't feel very connected at North Point. Yes. I, I don't know how to, is, is that a question or a statement? Yes, because if we just come on Sunday mornings, you will experience this sense of not feeling very connected. And so we, we, we push and we encourage and we use language and we shape towards the reality that we need other people. And not just friends or buddies, not just, just people in our lives. We, we all have acquaintances and that's good and it gets us through the day at work. But, but we need people who, who, are, who are absolutely committed to our spiritual growth. Uh, and I know that there's some folks in here that say, well, I don't need a life group. I, I don't need that. I don't, have any, I don't have any problems. I'm doing just fine. I'm just kind of living my best self, and this is great. And I'm like, that's, that's great. But see, the power of a group is that it's preventative. It's preventative. And so as we evaluate how, 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 how successful or efficient groups are, sometimes it's a hard thing to evaluate because we don't know the number of divorces that were staved off because of the power, the preventative power of a group. We don't, we don't know the number uh, of, of teenagers that were encouraged to not run away or not engage in illicit behavior or to continue following Christ because of the power of the group. It's hard to, it's hard to get those statistics. And so the power of a group is preventative, and it's why it's so rich and, and healthy because at some point, your life is going to Jenga apart. I mean, if we're just shooting straight, right? Stuff's going to come, stuff's going to happen, your life's going to Jenga, and you're going to feel like earthquake Jenga. And it's at those moments where maybe then you want to reach out to someone, but by then it's kind of late. And so what do some people do? There's a pastor that I know out at a large church in, in Georgia, and he says it like this. He says, those folks then, what do they do? They call the church. They call the church and they want to ask the church for help. And he says that's almost as successful as like just running out to the building in the parking lot there and screaming at the brick saying, help. What they mean when they say they call the church is they call a church office and they get uh, an individual that they don't know necessarily who's already overworked and overloaded and they want them to somehow step in and help mitigate this problem. I have to move my whole house by the end of the week. I'll call the church. Help. And outside of relationship, that just becomes a task that somebody maybe will do. And North Point in particular is a fantastic church, incredibly helpful and engaged with people, and maybe they'll do that. But the reality is just not the same. See, groups are preventative. So when that eviction comes and you're like, help, you have a group that already knows you at some point your life will Jenga apart. Maybe it'll be a marriage issue and all of a sudden your marriage isn't what you hoped it would be. I say all of a sudden it was probably years of inattention or bad habits and now you're at a point where one of the parties is saying, I don't want to be in this anymore. And you're like, help. You call a pastor and you want now maybe this pastor to meet with you and this person and really there's not a deep relationship because normally we're standing up here talking at you and you're sitting out there going, ah, I'm just trying to think of my grocery list or whatever. But all of a sudden you hope that this pastor has enough to say that will somehow make the marriage mend. And I, I, man, so much better when you're in a group. And so over those times when that marriage is moving in ways that aren't healthy, those, those people that are committed to you and your growth and your marriage's growth, they can say, uh-oh. Do you know that phrase? Uh-oh. Like, like if you have kids, you know that phrase. 
because you, you've done it to them. You're doing it to them. You will continue to do it to them because, because kids, and, and, and we were all kids, so we know this. Like, like we, we go down different directions sometimes, and maybe they're not like horrible chosen things, but they're maybe pathways that you've done and experienced, and you know it leads to some dangerous, hard-to-come-back-from places. And so what do you do with your kid? Because you care and you love them. You say, uh-oh, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> let's just dial it back in for let's talk about where you're headed. So that's the power, the preventative power of being in a group. And not just a group that meets for a few weeks and then doesn't meet and then you get into a different group and then it doesn't meet. That's a great way to start finding some potential intentional disciple-making relationships. But the power of a group that meets regularly, that you're part of, that, that can make a call on your life when your life begins to Jenga apart. Now, uh, some of you are already plugged into a group and you already have that support and I say good on you. Like that's, that's great. But I know that there are folks here in this room that, that uh, cause we track it, that, that are like, yeah, I don't need that. Now my hope is you say you don't need that because you have that. You've developed that somewhere along your life. You know, 20 years ago, you had a bunch of golfing buddies that turned into the best of friends and, and when you start acting like a knucklehead, they hit you in the back of the head with a nine iron and it all works out. It's great. I'm for that, especially the nine iron part. But, but my gut and experience tells me that a lot of us here don't have anything like that. You've got some friends that you play golf with that hit a nine iron, but, but they don't really know what's going on in you. And I just want to encourage you, uh, today we call it Life Group Connect. It's really just a Sunday that we set aside so we can be incredibly intentional about talking about the preventative power of groups and the importance of being part of it. And so if you're not in a group today, I just want to invite you in. I don't invite you into a group. There's a wall out there that's got tons of postcards. All the groups have paused over the summer. They're starting back up right now, this week, next week, week after. So you, you're coming in at a great time. You're not jumping into something that they've been doing for a while. We're starting back up. Some are brand new groups. Nobody knows anybody in the group. Some are groups that have been around for a little while and they kind of know each other, but they are looking for new people because they are bored with each other. I'm kind of kidding. And so today is a great day to grab those cards. If you don't like postcards because you're against paper, that's great. I'm with you online. You can just go to our groups page and you can check out all the group options that we have. All kinds of groups today. We're regrouping. Okay, end of rant. Fair enough. Thanks for listening to me. I appreciate you giving me a minute. Back to First Peter because this is where uh, the life-giving stuff is. I just want to finish by looking at Verse 7 and 8. 7 and 8 is such a powerful thing. Peter says, now to those who believe, those people who are following Jesus, those people committed to the mission of Jesus, being changed by Jesus, following Jesus, this stone, this cornerstone, that's Jesus, is precious. But to those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Peter's so clear. Like, there's two options here. There is no third option. There's two options Either you believe or you don't believe. Either, either you buy into this whole Jesus has made me holy, holy, or you don't buy into that. Those are the two options. And for those of us who have said, yeah, I recognize Jesus, I have a relationship with Jesus, I feel more leaky some days than other days or every day, but, but I recognize that Jesus is the cornerstone. I recognize that Jesus has made me holy, holy. For those of us who have who have, who have bought into that, who have entered into that, have, have shaped our lives in that reality, that's a precious thing, isn't it? To recognize that Jesus is the cornerstone of our life. I, I can't tell you the number of times that I've used the phrase in my own life, I cannot imagine doing life without Jesus. I've, I've had my share of fire, fire, earthquake, Jenga. We've had a pretty good life. My life doesn't compare to a lot of you guys' situations where you've had double 
to size double fire earthquake Jenga happened. I can't imagine doing life outside of a relationship with Jesus. I just don't see hope or encouragement or knowing that God's got a plan or that kind. And so this, this for us who, who recognize Jesus as this cornerstone, it's a precious thing. For, for folks who don't, that's what Peter is going on about there. And he's really quoting Psalms and Isaiah and the language that those two verses 7 and 8 begin to unpack. It's really judgment language, uh, stumble, fall, rejected, destined. This is language that to a a first century reader would have reminded them of the Old Testament prophets that were always preaching kind of doom and gloom, like you're in deep, deep trouble. And so this, this picture of the cornerstone, that Jesus is the cornerstone, begins to take just a little different shape and really begins to call him also the capstone. A cornerstone is that stone that starts the, the, the first stone that's laid. It sets the angles and the trajectory of the structure. The capstone is the last stone laid, and it really holds the whole thing together. It seals it together. It, it protects the, the structure from wind and, and rain and, and whatnot. So it's, it's really the end piece that's the protective component. The cornerstone is the beginning The capstone is the end. The cornerstone sets the trajectory. The capstone uh, is really what uh, protects it and and then shows us what that full building uh, looks like. So in essence, this is what I think Peter is saying about Jesus. Jesus is the starting point and the finishing point. He's the beginning and the end. He's the angle setter and the final designer. He creates the trajectory and protects its integrity. He sets the direction and holds it together. Jesus is quite literally uh, everything. For us who believe, it's precious. And for those who don't believe, it is only judgment. So my question to, to, to you today is, where are you? Does he, has he set the angles of your life? Is Jesus your cornerstone and your capstone? Are you holy, holy, and yet still holy? <laughs> Or are you still just playing church? Are you still stalling for time or saying, I'll figure it out when I get older or I I don't have time to figure it out now, just too busy or I have too many questions or I have all these intellectual objections or I just, nobody will answer my, or I, I, Christians are hypocritical. Yes, they are. Or I just don't, I haven't found a church. I I don't know. But I'd say today's the day. Where do you stand with Jesus? Peter's pretty clear. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other option given to mankind by which man can be saved. Uh, Richard Foster is an author. He, he writes uh, contemplative Christian stuff. And his book, Celebration of Discipline, it's a classic on spiritual disciplines like uh, prayer and fasting and solitude and whatnot. He says this. He says, In our contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he'll rest satisfied. Those qualities, they are not of the devil. They are the devil. This was like written in 1973, I think. Isn't that interesting? We haven't changed much since then. The muchness and the manyness is often what keeps us from placing Jesus as our cornerstone. I don't know where you're at with Jesus, but I can just tell you he's not trying to topple your tower. <laughs> he's not trying to Jenga your life. He isn't throwing funky blocks at you into your world trying to see if you fail and fall apart. Instead, he wants to be your base, your cornerstone, and your capstone, the beginning and the end, because in that, there's hope and joy and life and peace. In that, we are holy, holy, and yet still holy. Amen? If you'd stand, let's sing. We'll finish up.